Right, well, it's really good to be together this morning, and oh my, this is quite a, a big auditorium, isn't it? But uh, that's all right, we'll, we'll get used to that, I'm sure. Um, Sally and I have been coming here for a few years, and uh, we have two uh, daughters in their 20s, both married. Um, Emma and David are seated here this morning, and uh, my other daughter, Rachel, and her husband, uh, Kieran, are in Dunedin. And uh, they have two fantastic grandsons uh, that we're very, very proud of. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's just a little bit about me. Um, Sally's dad was, uh, he was a great man. He died some years ago. But um, one day when he was at church, some people, people arrived and he spoke to one of the guys he knew and he said, you know, he said, uh, you, you haven't been reading your Bible this week, have you? And the guy looked at him, how does he know? You know how does... And uh, he said, well, um, he said to him, well, wh- wh- how do you know? What, what makes you think that? He said, oh, you left it at our place on Tuesday night. <laughs> um, there's a song about this book, Ancient Words, Ever True, Changing Me, Changing You. They resound with God's own heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart. I'm so glad to be part of a church that loves this book and desires with all its heart to remain faithful to it. Um, The Psalms are a tremendous source of comfort and strength to us, and we're looking at them over these next few weeks. And, of course, they explore the great intersections of human emotion and experience in relating to God, And in them we recognise ourselves and our triumphs and our struggles, our joys and our sorrows. It's actually fitting that a psalm should have been used to inaugurate a city, as was the case for Sydney in 1788. The writer of the book on Sydney that I'm reading at the moment notes that the verse that the Reverend Richard Johnson read from was Psalm 161. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Psalm 161. Somebody's been drinking their coffee this morning. That's very good. Of course, we know that there are only 150 psalms in the Bible. And uh, I have to give the author of the book the benefit of the doubt that, uh, you know, it must have been a typo. Instead of Psalm 161, I looked it up, it was Psalm 116. Um, What shall we render to the Lord for all that he's done for us? Lord, we we thank you for our time uh, together this morning. And Lord, we want these words to impart to us this morning. Your words, Lord. And we just pray that you'd be with each one of us today and speak to us, Holy Spirit, as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Reuben chose a few psalms for this summer and he's given me Psalm 24. The psalm is traditionally associated with that triumphant relocation of the Ark of the Covenant, carrying the presence of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David and a great procession would have taken place and accompanied that with singing and music. And, you know, we can see David, as it says there, dancing before the Lord as they brought the Ark of the Covenant back. So let's read this psalm together, shall we? Psalm 24. 
And there it is up on the screen. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God, the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him and seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, he uh, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Well, the psalm begins with a joyful exclamation, doesn't it? The earth is the Lord's. The earth, a planet over 12,500 kilometres in diameter, circulating around the sun at over 100,000 kilometres per hour with its 8 billion inhabitants. It all belongs to God. In Isaiah 66, 1, God said, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you would build for me? He is the sovereign Lord, the supreme ruler over the universe, above all, through all, in all. He is the subject of our worship this morning. It all belongs to him. And sometimes when I'm sitting at home, I come out through the ranch slider and I sit out and look at my backyard and, you know, all that we've got in the house and everything else like this. And I think to myself, actually... This doesn't really belong to me. I'm, I'm just taking care of it till the next person comes along and they'll be taking care of it and, and so on like that. The Fenua, it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. And uh, we're simply stewards of it. David is enthralled and overwhelmed by God's omnipotence and his all-encompassing power and creation and by extension, God's faithfulness and mercy. His sense of awe and wonder bring him back to ask a question. And that question is in one sense an unthinkable question in this psalm. It's in verse 3. An unthinkable question that insists on being answered. An unthinkable question with what feels like an impossible answer. Who? shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, nor swear deceitfully. Some of your versions will make reference there to idolatry. We know by experience, and the Bible clearly teaches, that there are requirements to knowing and enjoying God, and uh, sometimes people might have us believe differently. At times we've talked to people, and I guess you have as well, about God or church life, and I've listened as they speak of 
the good life they lead, of being generous, of serving in the community, living a life of free of criminality. You know the sort of thing. You've had these conversations with people where they've unpacked all of the things that they believe justify their perception of what it means to be acceptable to God. And by the time you've finished talking to them, you think, well, yeah, that's, that's pretty right. That, that sounds pretty good. But you know that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll not be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. A righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. What on earth is that all about? Who were they? Well, the Pharisees were an influential religious group within Judaism in the time of Christ and the early church, and they were looked up to by everybody. They were known for their accuracy in all matters pertaining to the law of Moses. But while the Pharisees were sound in their professions and creeds, their system of religion was often more about outward appearance than inward transformation. They focused on external righteousness, self-righteousness, you might say. Jesus said to some of them, you know, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is full of greed and self-gratification. Some years ago, I attended a motorcycle rally in the square, um, a bunch of guys, the Harley's owner, owners group, you know. So there was about 100 um, Harley-Davidson motorcycles in the square, and I like motorcycles. I don't have one, but I like to look at them. And as I was walking around, lots and lots of people, I looked up, and there was a guy wearing a cap, and it said, Lion of Judah, Jesus is Lord. And I thought, oh, a Christian in the midst. So I went up to him, and I said, oh, I said, so... Uh, so you're a Christian then? He said, oh, no, no. He said, somebody dropped this on the ground and I'm just wearing it so they can see where it is. <laughs> this man wasn't trying to give a false impression, but, you know, sometimes we can be a bit like those Pharisees, appearing to be one thing but actually living a different way. We may even be proud of our achievements in our Christian walk. Jesus spoke a parable in Luke 18, and it says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one of them a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus for themselves, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and the tax collector standing afar off wouldn't so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility is a fantastic place to start as we examine our life journey towards God or in our journey with him. And it's a place where transformation can take place. Righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. Amazing. I'd never seen that before. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. Now watch this. This is important. 
he was radical to the point of persecuting the church. And then he had an encounter with Christ. Later, writing to the Philippians, uh, yes, to the Philippians, he said, watch out for those dogs. And he wasn't talking about the street canines. He was referring to the Judaizers, a faction of, the Christian, of Christians, both Jewish and non-Jewish, who insisted that circumcision and other Jewish laws and customs should be applied to believers in addition to their faith. It was serious enough for Paul to refer to them as dogs. And then he goes on to list his own credentials, circumcised according to the requirements of the law, his own credentials as a Pharisee as he was then, ethnically a true Hebrew, as an interpreter of the Old Testament law, a true Pharisee, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But in verse 7, he says, But whatever was gained to me, I now count as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for his sake I've suffered the loss of everything and count it rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness that is from God by faith. Let's read that last line together. The righteousness that is from God by faith. We cannot trust in our own righteousness. And this is what Jesus is hinting at in Matthew 5, and that's why the death and resurrection of Christ is so important. Paul makes it clear in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you know, if you're a believer sitting in this room today, you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. It's so good, it's so better than self-righteousness because, you know, you can be good, but you can never know how good you're going to be. Is it ever going to be good enough? Because of what Christ did on the cross, it is good enough if you've received him. Again, Paul says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. That's right. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is no boasting except in him. If you've never accepted Christ as your saviour, consider your need at the beginning of this new year. Those who fully receive Christ and enjoy him do so not on the basis of merit. So what are the credentials that maybe you need to let go of today? Born into generational Christianity, longevity of life or service in the church, a shopping list of good deeds of all kinds of things, 
First John chapter 1 says, well, we're told that we can't work our way to heaven or claim to be without sin. And 1 John chapter 1 verse 8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And we know what the next verse says, don't we? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all. That's right. Acts 4 says salvation is found in no one else because there's no other name under heaven by which a person can be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. The question David is asking himself in Psalm 24 this morning and by extension us is who may ascend the hill of the Lord? There are requirements to approach God and that is why we preach the good news. The bad news is that without Jesus we are simply kidding ourselves. Romans 3 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're separated from God without a saviour. The good news is that Jesus has made a way. When I became a Christian in my early 20s, Keith Green was a Christian singer at that time. He, he had a song called You Are the One. And in that song he said, I was lied to. I felt like that. I felt like the world had lied to me about what life was really all about. I was lied to, the song says, but you told the truth because you are the truth. I was lied to, but you told the truth to me. I was so lost, but you showed the way because you are the way. I was so lost, but you showed the way to me. I was dying, but you showed your life and you gave your life for me. I was dying, but you gave your life for me. Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord for he will abundantly pardon. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I look at a verse like this, I see that my hands aren't always clean, my heart not always pure. Idolatry can be subtle and stubborn in our hearts. You know, it's been said that the preaching of the word of God serves to confirm for believers what they only suspect is true. And I think it's important for us to continue to preach the word of God. Psalm 24 not only reminds us of God's splendor and sovereignty in his ownership of the earth and everything in it, but it also brings us front and center with his holiness. Holiness at the core means Separated. That's what that word means. It simply means separated. Separated from something and devoted to something else. So in reference to God, we may say that God is separated from sin and devoted to his own glory and honour. And his holiness provides the pattern for his people 
Isn't that cool? We are a holy nation, says 1 Peter 2.9. In fact, I'm going to read it uh, from this here, provided the writing's not too small. but, you know, this is, this is us. This is us, you see. We, the pattern for God comes to us. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. Once, once, you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And we are separated just as God is from the world. That's our separation, separated from the world. And uh, as Reuben pointed out to us last week, when we pursue holiness, happiness will follow. In our pursuit, we realise we're in a battle, the flesh against the spirit, the devil against the church, the world enticing each of us to allow it to inform our thinking instead of this book. As we've seen already, already we have imputed righteousness. That's what theologians call the righteousness that we receive through what Jesus did. It's the righteousness that we've been given. And then there's the righteousness that we walk in. The righteousness that we pursue. And Romans chapter 6, Paul says, talks about us presenting ourselves as instruments of righteousness And uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, isn't it interesting that, Tony, you should have read the first three verses of uh, Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. Uh, You know, sometimes if you're giving a little message and something like that happens, you sort of think, oh, that's that's cool, because you sort of think, well, that's right. It's It's right that we should share that. Because also, going on from that in Hebrews 12, it says, In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as children for what children are not disciplined by their father. And if you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we all had human fathers who disciplined us and and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. I love what the old version says. 
the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Something about that, eh? I was talking to my daughter in Dunedin last night, talking about this verse. I said, oh, it seems so hard. Sometimes you don't want to share things like this, but, you know, it was quite interesting, the conversation she had, where I had with her. And she was talking about, with her two grandsons, about having boundaries as a source of security for children. And we might say, for us. And that's what the Bible's about, isn't it? And just like children, discipline can come as a result of not making the right choices. Just like children, just like us. And maybe you've had a bit of a curveball thrown your way. And the intention is not to hurt or harm, but to guide and shape us to be who we are called to be. I was reading one of these devotional books, Oswald Chambers. He said that sometimes crisis will come into our lives because we will not choose the gentler way. And maybe if you had a bit of a curveball, God may be speaking to you about some of these things, but always it is because he loves us so much and wants us to meet uh, to meet our, um, what it is that we're called to be. And in response to all of this, there's a word that we looked at in the last couple of sermons of last year, just briefly, the word repent, which in the original is metanoio. That's the original Greek. Meta meaning after and noio to perceive. So repent means to perceive afterwards. It's kind of like something that you didn't realize or didn't see before is pointed out to you after the fact. And it literally means a change. It has to do with the mind and literally means to change your mind. In Acts chapter 17, it says that God um, took times of ignorance. He overlooked those, but now he calls all people everywhere to repent. And changing your mind about some of the things that you've been anchoring your life in. If you don't know God or have ignored him, then repentance is changing your mind about him. It's the prompting of, and conviction of the Holy Spirit that allows you to understand that nothing, no good, works, no super deeds, no grand intentions, no pious behaviour, no religious ceremony, nothing, absolutely nothing can bring about your salvation but Christ and what he did on the cross to take away your sins and declare you righteous. And it's that same conviction of the Holy Spirit that helps us as believers in continued repentance towards God, that continued change of mind that brings about what Romans 14, 17 describes as righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is. Repent. It means to change 
your mind. The tense of the verb in the original has an urgency about it. It's like commit to make this happen, begin to do this now. And I just loved your opening comments, Isaac, about these psalms during the summer period, beginning of a new year, sort of setting us on a true north to how we might want to live this year. And I'm excited about that. I am so excited that, you know, God is always giving us new chances, fresh beginnings. You know, um, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It never comes to an end. His mercies are, say it with me, new every morning. That's right. Great is his faithfulness. I'd just like to ask the musicians to come now. Thank you. That would be great. So the big question, the takeaway from this this morning is, what do you need to change your mind about this year? Maybe it's your sceptical, doubting, or non-committal attitude to God. You know, you don't know the Lord as your Saviour. Maybe you've been holding him in the background of your life. You know, repent. So many people think that word means I've got to scrub myself up and make myself so clean and so good that I can stand in front of there. No, it's not that. It's simple. It's just changing your mind about the things that have created a gap between you and the Lord and acting on it. Maybe it's that idol, that distraction, that thing that keeps you from fully enjoying fellowship with God and his people. How many of us know that sin does that? Just seems to spoil everything. And maybe there's a start. Maybe you can turn a new page and uh, change your mind. The final verses of our psalm, lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. See, God's will and desire is to make us victorious in everything he has asked of us. He's not asking us to do anything that we cannot do. I think that's a very challenging concept. We are not victims. Can I say that again? We are not victims. We have a God who is for us and not against us. We are called to triumph and the Lord strong and mighty as we heard that first song this morning that battle belongs to him and you know when we engage him he is going to give us victory. Yeah? And uh, Isaiah 41.10 you know I brought it on my back pocket this morning. I wrote it down because I'm a bit nervous this morning but you are my servant I have chosen you and not cast you off fear not for I am with you be not dismayed for I am your God I will strengthen you I will help you I will uphold you with my righteous right 
hand. Who is this King of Glory? He is the one hinted at in Daniel chapter 7. Let's close with these words. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And a final verse from Revelation chapter 17 and even before I bring it, can I suggest as a summer read that you read Revelation? So many believers are afraid to open that, the pages of Revelation and yet it pronounces on the person that hears it and reads it a blessing. You don't have to be a theologian to read the book of Revelation. There are at least a dozen different interpretations and sub-interpretations of that book. You don't have to be familiar with any of them. You just need to take in the grandeur of it. The sovereign power of the God of creation and of Jesus Christ found in that book, it will be enough. Maybe there'll be a day to dig a bit deeper into it, but it'll be enough just to discover that grandeur. But look what it says. Revelation 17, 14. Who is the King of glory? They will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them for He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings and those with him, those with him are called chosen and faithful. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And everyone said, Amen.